Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We are going to be in the book of Ephesians. It's found uh, verses 3 through 14. Same verses, different sermon today than last week. This is God's holy and unchangeable word to us this morning. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, and God says to us this morning, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You may be seated. In your bulletin, the the passage um, and, and the extra text about Revelation that was just going to be a reference for you. Um, and the notes that are in there, it was my initial plan to preach that. But when I was a page and a half in just on my introduction uh, to build the points, I realized this introduction is a sermon in itself. And uh, it would be too complex. So I needed to just preach this. Um, In these passages, what I saw that I just could not be jumped over uh, is pure gold, absolutely gold. Look at verse 9. It says that uh, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. In other words, God has two wills, and some theologians would, would say three. But there is clearly the revealed will of God. That is what he desires. You can say that that is clearly uh, in the Ten Commandments, in the law. Do this, don't do that. That is, that is right there for us. It's not hidden. Then there is the decorative will of God, or as some theologians call it, the sovereign, efficacious will of God. This is not that God's saying, you ought to, but he's saying, this, by my sovereign p- power, will come to pass. See, everything that has happened in history and in your life would fall under the decorative will of God, meaning like a king that has all power over his kingdom and his subjects gives out a command, go and do this, 
and they go out and they do it. The decorative will of God is so powerful and so encompassing that it even encompasses evil and the bad things that happen in this world. Not in a way that God is the author of it because God cannot be the author of evil. But in such a way that God is not just responding to something that is bad, but that he is sovereign over it. In in other words, there is the decorative will of God that controls all things. That he's in control of all events that take place. But often it's very hidden from us. And we don't see it as it is. Two great examples from scripture for us. Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. Basically his brothers planning to kill him. God causes Joseph to rise to a place of leadership in the Egyptian uh, kingdom, and he's able to provide food during the, the famine, which saves the people of Israel. And Joseph meets his brothers many years later that basically sold him into death. And these guys are afraid that they're going to be smitten, destroyed by Joseph, who has risen to power. And if you know Genesis 50, Joseph says to them what? He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It was under the control of God that this took place. And then even more uh, clear is Jesus himself, as Peter says to uh, the Israelites after the resurrection of Christ Jesus, talking to the nation of Israel, he says, Jesus was delivered over to you by the definite plan of God. Meaning God's in control. God did this. But Peter says, you killed him. God is in control. God has a secret decorative will that is often hidden from us. And what makes this passage gold is that up to now, in the history of civilization, God has kept some things revealed. But in this passage, as Paul says in verse 9, the mystery is now revealed. In Sunday school, we, we talked about Psalm 111 that talks about the work of God, the splendor and the majesty of God. And that is what's revealed before us, the splendor and the majesty of God in these passages. And yet there's a problem for us, a challenge for the human heart. And that is that we have heard this before, so we have the tendency, both today and in our daily lives, not to be wowed by it anymore. And that is because there's a a, a truth that... Even things that are good, when they become normal for us, we have the tendency to take them for granted or lose appreciation for them. Married couples, your spouse, do you still treasure them after 30 years the same way? Or do you find at times you take them for granted? Do you lose appreciation for your kids? What a blessing it is to have them. Teenagers, younger folks, what about your outfit that you just had to have, that you worked hard for? Think about, what about your house? My, my son had lost complete 
understanding of the blessing that we have in having a roof over our head. So at 8 o'clock in the middle of the winter a couple years ago, I put him in the car and we drove downtown San Diego and looked at people sleeping on the street with no shoes on their feet. Because he had lost an understanding. He'd, he'd lost context and it just become normal to him. And we do this. Here it is. We lose the context of Christ. And here's the spoiler alert. alert. The mystery that was hidden for ages is Christ. The wow fact, the amazement is Christ. And yet we can lose sight of that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to now pray for that the Lord would open our eyes. And then after we're done praying, we're going to build context so that we can see that wow again that's here. And in a sense, take a drive downtown so that the Lord would reveal to us what has been given to us. So please pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, you know the human heart. You know we are all like sheep are go astray. You know we are like our forefathers that have a tendency towards hardness of heart. And we have scales upon our eyes. But Lord, help us to see with new eyes afresh the glory that you have shown us and the world in Christ Jesus. Let us see him as he is by your spirit. And may our hearts be united to yours in worship and pleasure and in trust. And it's Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this passage came 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, this passage, this revelation of the mystery of God had come 2,000 years ago. But up to that point, the nation of Israel had had relationship with God for all the way dating back to Abraham 2,000 years before that. So the nation of Israel had a context, had a relationship with God, and they knew things about him. And it was into this that Paul reveals this mystery. What are the things that they knew? That they knew that God was absolutely powerful. I mean, unbelievably powerful. The laws of nature could not sustain and control or inhibit God. He turned an entire river into blood. He controlled nature and caused frogs to flood the palace of Egypt. He caused he could cause boils to boil up and wounding, uh, wounded pestering sores upon his enemies. He saw them, God split the Red Sea and them go through on dry ground. They knew God was absolutely powerful. There was no other God like this God. They also knew that God was a God of judgment. The Israelites knew the story of the flood that Uh, God looked upon the earth after creating the earth and it falling into sin. That that there was such evil on the world and such rebellion against God and, and not caring for him. That God flooded the entire planet or the entire world and, and only eight people survived. And who were these people? Noah and his wife. Noah's three adult sons and their three adult wives. That means every other man, woman, and child received the judgment of God, the righteous judgment. They know that God hates evil. 
They know that their ancestor Korah in the wilderness, rebelling against God and who God had appointed, caused the entire earth to swallow them up, to open and and suck up and and, and completely swallow the people of Israel. The Israelites knew this. They also knew, besides God's judgment, but that he is a merciful God, did they not? They saw that God delivered them from Egypt, that when they were in need and hungry, God fed them manna in the wilderness. They saw that uh, God caused water to come out from the rock. They saw that God provided them many, many leaders to bring them uh, out of the judgment and the bondage that they had found himself. He was a patient God, a long-suffering God, a loving God. Everything he did was injustice. So they see that God is powerful. He's a God who judges and hates sin. They see that God is merciful. And they definitely know that their relationship with God is strained. The Israelites understand this awesome God, their relationship with him is not great. The entire generation in the wilderness grumbled against him. Listen to Nehemiah as the the people gather and worship and they come back from the exile for their rebellion. Nehemiah gets up in chapter 9 and he gives this long spiel about the history of the Israelites. And you can just see this this repetitious cycle that happens of the the people. I'll, I'll read the verse, verse 17. They refused to obey the people of Israel and were not mindful of the wonders that God performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But Nehemiah keeps going on. He says, but you are a God ready to forgive. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. But Nehemiah goes on, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your laws behind their back and they killed your prophets, the ones who you sent to warn them to turn back around. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. But it goes on again. It it says, but because of your great mercies, you you gave them suffers, uh, saviors who saved them from the hand but after that, they went on. After they had rested, they returned to evil. It is a, a, a strained relationship between Israel and this God. Two more things that the, the nation, the Israelites knew about God when this text came out. They knew that they were separated from God. The Israelites in their culture and in their time grew up and right out of the bat, they were surrounded by God's laws. Why? Because God has righteous requirements and if you want to be next to God you've got to do x but if you don't do x then you have to stay away and the only way to get back to God is through sacrifices and so in their time it was a very bloody relationship with God the Israelite history it was a very bloody endeavor talking about the Israelites back in the temple time there is recordings of the the priests who were having to offer sacrifices for their sins, wading through the blood. There was so much blood from the goats and animals and the flies and the, the knives and the, the crying out of the animals. There was constant sacrifices being made, and there was always a knowledge that in some way they were unclean. 
And finally, there was always chaos in the world. The Israelites knew that they were, there was always chaos going on in the world. There were wars everywhere. They had the Egyptians, the Hittites, the Philistines, the Romans, the, uh, the, the uh, Assyrians, the Babylonians. There was war happening outside their door. 180,000 soldiers murdered by God outside their door with their bodies laying there. The nation of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, having been sieged, and even to the point to where the Israelites were committing cannibalism within their gates. Not to, not, not, not to mention famines and fires and pencilates, absolute chaos. And so this is the way, this is the world that this news comes into. This good news of Jesus Christ, this good news that things are changing, this good news that there, there, there's hope. It comes into this storm. And really, is this storm, is this situation so far off from our daily lives? Do we not recognize God's power? Do we not see in our lives God's uh, judgment against sin and that he hates sin? And that it won't prevail forever. We know judgment is coming. Do we not also know that God, though, is so merciful to us? And we have many hints of that in our life. But don't we often feel like our relationship with God is strained? Sin is not something new. It's not something that has gone away from. Statistics say that one in four Americans view sexually explicit material regularly. It doesn't separate Christian from non-Christian. There, uh, there is pride. There is judgment with us. There is uh, words that bite. There is sloth. There's laziness. There's gluttony. We too have this insatiable desire for material things. A credit card and, and uh, 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 debt is, is rising and materialism. And we often feel shameful and separated from God. Do we not? Or, or do you feel like the world feels this separation and we definitely feel the chaos? Wars, politics, diseases, finances, relationship issues. This is still our reality. And so if we can, we can try to hopefully grasp the trouble that we are in, we can see the goodness of this mystery with news. The splendor and the majesty. That's, that's how this is described. This is supposed to be something that is, is majestic of what is being described here. It has now been revealed, and that mystery is Jesus Christ. Uh, there's three things that Paul says, because of Christ arriving, this is the good news. This is the mystery that is now revealed, that it was, they didn't see it coming. And the very first thing that he says is that through Christ, God adopts us and makes us his children. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This was his will from the beginning to adopt us through Jesus Christ. There's two reasons why this was totally unexpected to the first hearers. Number one, 
is because it wasn't based on being a descendant of Abraham. Certainly, the Israelites were God's special people. And through them came the promises and even the Messiah. But Paul declares, this is opened up to the Gentiles now, those who are not of the descendants of Abraham. And we see this in verse 11. To them, this was a big deal. Verse 11, Paul says, We, talking about Paul and the other Jews, obtained the inheritance. The inheritance that they thought was first only limited to a, a land. Paul now understands it's, it's an inheritance of all the blessings that are in God. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. Paul says, we obtained the inheritance. We got it through Christ. But Paul, in amazement, verse 13 says, in him you also. This is crazy, Paul says, that you, the, the, the Gentiles, you heard this news. God has reached down to you. You've heard the gospel. You believed in it, and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and you now have an inheritance. This is, is really hard for us to understand in our modern times the significance of this. And I think to our detriment, because we don't see the hurdle that God overcome. Um, chapter 2, it, 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 Paul highlights the craziness of this idea that if you're here and you're not an Israelite, that you and I now can become children of God through Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, he, he says, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Yes, everybody was. Everybody had this, this inability to come to God. But he goes on talking in verse 11 about the Israelites. He's there, he says to them, or to the Gentiles, he says to them, he says to us, at one time you were separated from God. You were in this chaos, but you were separated from the only one that could do something about it. You were in the world, and you were absolutely without hope. That's what he's declaring to all those before Christ came. This is a new change. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6, Paul makes it very clear that this is insane. He even says the mystery, chapter 3, verse 6, the mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body. Saints, do you realize how bad your situation was? Do you realize how hopeless you were until Christ came? I, when I was in high school, and let this be a warning to, to all those younger folks, I was drinking with a bunch of friends. I thought it was really funny. I was drinking. And, and when you drink and, and you, you're not of the age and you're not responsible, it makes you do really, really stupid and dangerous, even deadly things. And I lived in Michigan, and there's these piers that go out into the water. And a after a night of drinking, we go out on these, these big, solid piers that you can walk out into Lake Michigan on. And I thought it'd be funny to strip down to my boxers and jump in and swim and try and impress my friends and everybody there. And I got about 15 yards away from the pier, and I realized I can't make my extremities move. I'm going underwater. I'm done. And, and I... I, I just felt this arm come around me, and thankfully there was a Marine buddy of mine that was home from boot camp and jumped in. It was the middle of the night, no lights on, and he pulls me, and he pulls me up, and he puts me on that pier, and I'm laying there just gasping. I think about that still now, and I realize I cannot believe how close I was to death. 
And it brings terror in my life. This is what Paul is saying to you. That is no more. Because of Christ, God sending Christ into the world, he picks us up, he saves us, and he sets us on solid ground. Christ Jesus. It is absolutely absurd and amazing for us as Gentiles. We are now welcomed into the family of God. This is also a great mystery, not just because we are not of the line of Israel, but also it's a mystery that we were adopted through Christ because it's not based off of our works, but it's a free gift of God's eternal choosing. It's not based off of what we do. It's based off of God's eternal choosing. Even Israel, God's own people, had this relationship with God through the law. And they had the promised land and the promise that God would bring them into the land. And he would cause them to remain in the land based on their obedience, right? And so on the eve of the Israelites being brought out of Egypt and entering into the promised land, Moses reads them God's law again. He says, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. This is his law. He has brought you into the promised land. In order to remain there, you better do this. And the people said what? We will do this. How did that go? It didn't. They failed over and over again, and they are evicted out of the land. And Paul here is saying, that's not the way it works anymore. It's not based off of your obedience. It's based off of God's eternal choosing of you. Look at verse 4. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ. He predestined us for adoption. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us. He chose to bring us into the family of God for the sole reason, 100% the sole reason of the good pleasure of his will. In other words, it's not because of you. It's because he wants to. Paul, Paul is saying that's what it's based on. It's because it, this is his will. The, the mystery of the will of God is being revealed here. And this is what Paul is telling the people. You are where you are at. Reconciled to God because this was God's good pleasure. You and I and every other person on this planet are orphans. Because of our sins separated from God. We have no father, no mother. We are left by the world. We have nothing to offer and we are super difficult to care for. And yet God says, I choose you to be mine. I choose you to be mine through Christ Jesus. That's the work that takes place. It's not your work. It's his work. And if you note this in verse 5, he says, he adopts us as sons through Jesus Christ. Paul declares that he adopts us as sons. What about the women? Well, they too are adopted as sons. For God calls and makes children, women, girls, men, 
boys. Actually, he's taking people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and making us into a people of God and giving us an inheritance. What Paul is saying in this to these saints, he's saying God chose you and he chose you and he's blessing you and he's treating you like the eldest born son. And the eldest born son gets all the inheritance from the father. And so each one of us is chosen by the free will, most holy, wise, sovereign will of God. And each one of us is given every blessing in Christ Jesus. That's the mystery. That's how we, we, we are here. And that's, that's why we have all that we have. The second mystery that we see here is that God... Uh, verse 7, I'll, I'll, I'll just read. It says, In Jesus we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his gate, grace. This is the mystery. This is how we can become children. It's through the blood of Christ Jesus. These people, a lot of times we can think people that were lived earlier than us, were not, are not as smart as us. These people were way smart. These people knew the righteousness and holiness of God more than we do. They wouldn't even write out the full name of God because his name is so holy. When the priest went into the Holy of Holies every year, they tied a rope around his ankle in case because he got close to God, he would just drop down dead and they would they couldn't go in there because they too would drop down dead so they would have to pull him out of the holy of holies by the rope they recognize who god was and they recognize god can call us to himself desire for us to be in his presence but because god is a holy consuming fire and they are a people laden by their sins they would be swallowed up by his righteousness even Isaiah the prophet, when he's taken up into the throne room of God, says, I am undone, for I live amongst a people with unclean lips. The mystery that has now been revealed that was not fully understood or totally clearly seen is that God was going to satisfy his wrath, his just wrath for sin, and he was going to save a people by sending his own son to reconcile us. Isaiah 52, 5 says, by his stripes we are healed. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who knew no sin, who, who, him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we would become the righteousness of God. This is the mystery, as Paul says in Romans 1, a righteousness from God has been revealed. That there is a righteousness for us to be reconciled from God, but it doesn't come from within. It comes from above. And we are received and reconciled based on his works. And so Paul is saying, listen, there's no more blood. There's no more sacrifices. Forget the goats. Forget the bulls. Forget the incense. Forget all the, the sprinkling. 
you got to understand, up to this point, they recognized their sin. And for 1,500 years, starting with the tabernacle in the wilderness, for 1,500 years, they set up a temple, an altar, a tabernacle. And God was in there, and the people could not come near God except with sacrifice. This was instilled on their brains, the worshiping at the sacrifice, the sacrificing, the killing. And now Paul says, it's obsolete. It's obsolete, for all that was a shadow of the one true sacrifice, Christ Jesus. You think you and your family have traditions and values and and ways that you celebrate holidays and when you you bring in somebody from outside, maybe somebody marries into the family and and they don't do things the way you, you, you do. You think that's hard to deal with? Imagine the Israelites no more sacrifice. You mean I can come? Yes. How, how can I approach him? Christ. But, but do, do we have to do it again next week? No, once and for all. This is absolutely mind-boggling that sinful people can approach God and not be consumed, but be received and held and loved and given an inheritance. Earlier I had said that one of the challenges is that we know these things. We have heard them. Lord willing, every Sunday you've, the mystery of God has been revealed. And that is Christ Jesus. That God is redeeming us and reconciling us through Christ. But my question for you and my question for myself when, when I wonder and when I, when, when I have doubts is do I really believe Or do I live like God accepts me off of my works? Am I still not paralyzed, slowed down, dragging my feet in shame or guilt? When I'm not on fire, when I have missed church, when I'm not praying like I ought to, when I've got this sin that isn't under control, I feel like I need to work my way back into Christ or, or I kind of do this quiet quitting where in my heart I just say, it's, I, I can't do it. It's too high. And you know what? I don't, my heart becomes seared. And I still go through the motions. I still go to church. I still go to the Bible studies. But my heart is hard. And I feel very, very distant from God. And I feel like he's a disappointed father. See, we think we know, but do we know? Do we know? Do you know the grace of God? Do you, do you understand it? I mean, if some of you are uh, tinker with cars or some of you bake. And if I was talk to you, I'd say, I, I know how cars work or I, I know how the the principles of bacon and cake, but do I know? Let me ask you, do you really understand the ins and outs of God's grace? Or do you think God's grace is something that he's done for us and now he says, live up to it. Live up to it. I gave you this, look at the cross, live up to it. Well, saints, that if you have that view, you're only looking at one aspect of grace. You walk around to the other side, explore the entire thing, because the grace that God gives isn't just God doing one thing for you, but it's God doing a whole thing 
you. So much so that Paul can say to the saints in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ. Paul has absolute confidence that this is going to take place. Because God's grace is so good, it doesn't just, uh, doesn't just take us to the point of being forgiven and redeemed, but it actually causes us to live and to trust in that grace. To live and trust in that redemption. To live and trust in that gracious election that was based off of God's will and not my works. Think about this. When Christ came to the world and he started his earthly ministry, what was the first thing that he did? One of the first things. He chose 12 disciples. He said, come with me. And did Christ give them a six-week crash course about the facts of the gospel and redemption and say, go tell others. This is grace, go. No, what did he say? He said, follow me. And they followed him a long time. And where did Christ lead them? He led them into crowds where there were people that were smarter than them, people that had higher spiritual rank than them. There were people that were wealthier than them. And Jesus says to his disciples, he says, yes, they have all these things, but I chose you. And Jesus goes on further and he leads his disciples into situations where they can't figure it out. They don't have all the gifts of leadership or skill to be able to solve the problem like feeding the 5,000 or the 4,000 or healing the the man with the demon. They, They don't have the gifts. And what does he say to them? He provides for them. He does the healing for them. He takes care of them. He leads them into storms where their faith fails. And they say, don't you even care about us? We're perishing. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't abandon them. He calms the storm for them. He doesn't ridicule them for their lack of faith. He acts and takes them in such a way that it encourages and builds their faith. And he allows them to sin like Peter three times to sin. And and Jesus, what does he do? Kick him out? No, he allows it. He knew it was going to happen. And what he says to Peter is, my grace is sufficient for you. When you return, because I know you will, strengthen your brothers. Encourage them. See, it's one thing to know these things in your head, but it's another thing to know that God's grace is working in your life in such a way it's going to cause you to trust in it. By God's grace, he's walking you through trials. He is transitioning you into something new. God did not come here just to save us, but he came here to sanctify us as well. In this passage, it says he chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. In 1 Peter, what did Peter say? He said the same thing. God has made you a holy nation of priests. What do priests do? They praise God. What do we look at when we see that revelation, the end of times? We're all praising God. The grace was enough to save you, but it's also a grace that patiently sanctifies you. Also, 
And he wants you to trust in that as much as the other stuff. Oftentimes we go through these trials and these, these, these challenges and we, we, we get mad at God and we think he doesn't care. It's the exact opposite. He is, uh, he is teaching us the mystery that you are his. That you are his, uh, not because of your works, but because of it's his good pleasure. And he is te- he's not just telling you the mystery. He is teaching you the mystery. I, I, this morning we talked about Psalm 111. And one of the beautiful things uh, about Psalm 111 is that we behold the works of God and we come to learn and trust in God. How he has taken his people through darkness and challenges and he's provided for them and he's merciful for them. And then chapter, uh, Psalm 111, 112 are tied together and 111 is about how gracious God is. 112 is about how blessed the person who trusts in him is. And verse 7 of Psalm 112 says this. He says, he is not afraid when bad news comes for he trusts in God and he stands firm. God is molding you through these trials. Christ is leading you in these trials. That's the great mystery. So that we would come to become worshipers who trust in him. And and so that's the great mystery. The mystery is it's it's not about us. We're reconciled by God and not just forgiven. And now we just got to keep offering sacrifices. We're, We're totally forgiving and we're adopted as children. And he's raising us up. In his family. The, the third mystery is one of my favorites. Or just, it completely uh, ties to all these others. And it, it comes from verse 9. It says this. It says, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time. God is actively doing all these things. And he says, there's a plan of God for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth. Is the plan of God through Christ who now has arrived that Paul is like, this guy is going to bring everything together. And I get these images in my mind. If you watch any of the Marvel or superhero movies, you, you see that there's some characters that have such power intense power that all the, 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 the metal or all the objects around them start shaking when they are present and they, boom, come at them at speed of light and stop right around them. And this being that has all power is just there and it's showing that everything is at this being's beck and call. Well, that's in Hollywood studios. And where, does, where do they get the notion of that? Well, they are made in God's image. They are the creation of God, and we all have a sense of God. They get that from God himself. Christ has all absolute power. Everything is at his beck and call. And in Revelation, he repeats this twice. He says, Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. Absolute power belongs to Christ Jesus. And Paul is saying, you're welcome. Here it is. 
And so I, I, I get this image, and, and Paul is communicating power, but what does he say that God, Christ is doing with all this power? That he's uniting all things in Christ, in heaven and on earth. There is order. A new thing that is now taking place is God's plan. He's uniting. It's active. He's doing it. It's in the process. The one who is capable is here, and he's bringing order to all these things. And I get this picture of all this chaos that the Israelites live with, with wars and battles and, and, and people that hated God and all the idols. And I get this image in our life of, of politics and famine and greed and gluttony and people hating God and all this rebellion and the storms and the famines. And through Christ, he's saying, Christ is bringing all this chaos by his perfect power through human history to a point where there's going to be peace. There's going to be a point, and Christ is doing this, where heaven and earth are no longer separated. They're no longer disjointed. You don't have a God up here who deserves all glory and a people down here in chaotic rebellion. You have Christ who is the judge over all who on that final day is going to judge each man, each person. And if they are found without the righteousness required by God that is only possible through faith in Christ Jesus, they are going to be sent to eternal punishment hell, which is not the absence of God. It is the absence of God's blessing, but it is the presence of his wrath. And there is no escaping this place. Christ has perfect order over that. He carries out his judgment perfectly. And it leaves heaven and earth perfectly united under Christ, glorifying God in heaven. And there is no more chaos. And that is what is now taking place through Christ Jesus. That wasn't before. This is the mystery. It's not a great kingdom on this earth rising up and conquering all the other nations. It's the great king making a new nation, a new heaven, and a new earth. So if you are here and you are a saint, you are a follower of Christ Jesus, but you're struggling with whatever sin that may beset you, and there's no sin that is not common to the rest of us. And you feel like running. You feel like hanging your head low. Paul says to you, behold the mystery. God has chosen you. God is justifying you through Christ Jesus. God is sanctifying you by his spirit as you follow Christ Jesus, as he leads you in Christ Jesus, and all these trials and tribulations you're going through, they're sanctifying you. They're for your good. And he is making you a holy and blameless worshiper in him. Glorify him. Look to the Father. Look to the Son. And give praise to him. And rest. Because it is the, good, the Father's good pleasure to do this to you. If you are here and this still has not sparked your heart, as is likely with us and happens with us. There can be two reasons. It can, 
It can be because our hearts have become so hard in that. I just can't believe the good news that is there. Well, hear the good news. If today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Repent and turn. For it is through the hard-hearted, it is through the awful that God is most glorified. As Paul says in 1 Timothy, he says, I was the chief among sinners, yet it was God's will to sanctify me and to save me as a picture of his power. So, saint, there is nothing that you have done, or not saint, those who are outside of Christ, there's nothing that you have done that can stop you from being a saint. Hear him calling you and receive him. And some of you who think, well, I can still do it by myself. Look at the examples before us. We had Abraham, Moses, Noah, David, all the prophets. None of them could do it by themselves. They all were not enough. They all were looking and waiting and needing a Messiah. And that Messiah is now revealed. The mystery is out of the bag. It is Christ Jesus turned to him. Let us pray. Lord, you are clothed in majesty and power. Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your Son to reconcile a world that was without hope. I thank you for revealing this mystery to us. Father, I know that there are many mysteries and and challenges that uh, you do not explain to us of why things are the way they are. But let us look to the revelation that has been on display for us for 2,000 years. That we see you are a good God, a merciful God, a just God, a holy God. Who calls us to himself. Heavenly Father, only your spirit can do that. Work that in us that we may be stand fast and stand firm in Christ Jesus, the solid rock, our Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.